you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 to 34. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. G'day, City on a Hill, Melbourne West. I hope you're doing great this week, and I hope you can't hear the dogs barking next door as we continue our 1 Corinthians series. I'm looking today at 1 Corinthians 15. Now, obviously, I preached on this on Sunday in the digital service, but today I wanted to think a little bit more about some stuff that was related to the topic on Sunday. Today I want to ask the question, what is the future for our world, for the physical world around us? The message of 1 Corinthians 15 is, of course, that matter matters, that the whole gospel message and the narrative and the story of, of everything is a physical story. Jesus 
died, Jesus was buried, Jesus rose physically, literally. Uh, and this all proves that there is value and importance in the physical. Unlike other religions and other philosophies, Christianity is inherently physical and material. This is something I explored uh, in my sermon on Sunday, but today I want to explore a bit more about uh, how that relates to the physical world around us. What I'm asking is, what is the future for our world? Now, on Sunday, we explored how humanity is connected to Adam and to Christ. And now I want to explore how the world is connected to those events that happen around Adam and Christ, how the actions of humanity impact the world around us. Because there's always been a connection. God created the world and made it perfect in Genesis 1. Everything is good and very good. God is in control and everything is as he designed it. And then he entrusts this to humanity. He gives to Adam and Eve, to humanity, the task of ruling this world. He says you have dominion over the earth. He calls on us then to rule it and to protect it and to bring forth life from it. But then, of course, sin ruins everything. Uh, God gives humanity rule over the world, but then humanity rejects God's rule and throws everything out of order. Everything falls into chaos. And so in Genesis 3, we're told that the, the ground is cursed because of our sin and the world lives under this curse. That's why there's drought and storm and hurricanes and tsunamis. That's why there's death disease and decay. But what happens when Jesus comes? Uh, the decay is the fruit of what Adam's done and humanity has done. So what happens when Jesus comes? You see, Jesus brings hope of restoration for humanity, but what about the rest of creation? Uh, how does the story end? What is the future for the world? Now, it's important to note that there's actually quite a bit of debate about this. You see, there are some passages that seem to suggest that the world and everything in it is just temporary, that they're destined to pass away. Uh, Jesus says in Matthew 24 that heaven and earth will pass away. The Apostle John says it in 1 John 2 that the world is passing away. And then in Revelation 21, we're told that uh, John sees this vision of a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, he says. Now that phrase, pass away, sounds almost peaceful, but sometimes the scriptures speak more strongly. Isaiah 34 verse 4, all the host of heaven shall rot away and the skies shall roll uh, and the skies roll up like a scroll. Sometimes it actually feels quite violent. Psalm 102 verse 26, uh, the earth and the heavens will perish. And then perhaps most notably, 2 Peter 3 verse 10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Either way, it sounds very final, as if this physical reality that we inhabit is doomed. However, there are other passages that sound quite different that suggest creation is not so much destroyed, but changed. In Romans 8, for instance, we get the sense that creation is almost imprisoned and longing for redemption and freedom and restoration. Verse 19, the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. 
for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. That language of childbirth and waiting suggests that the the creation is longing for something better. It's still going to experience it, and that's what it's longing for. And in fact, the Peter, the same Peter, who talked about the world being destroyed, elsewhere talks about it being restored. Acts 3.21, preaching to the Jews after the day of Pentecost, he writes that heaven and earth must receive Jesus until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. So what's going on here? We have this picture of the earth being destroyed, but also restored. Why the difference and how do we reconcile this difference? Well, it's important to note that when the Bible speaks about God's judgment, it often describes it as a purifying thing. It's not just to annihilate something, but to cleanse it and to refine it, to to make space for new life. I think then that when God speaks about creation passing away, there is a sense in which judgment is coming on all of the earth, but also that that judgment gives space for new life. John Piper writes this, that what Peter may well mean is that at the end of this age, there will be cataclysmic events that bring this world to an end as we know it, not putting it out of existence, but wiping out all that is evil and cleansing it by fire and fitting it for an age of glory and righteousness and peace that will never end. Uh, Perhaps it's a little bit like a bushfire. I don't know if you've ever gone through the countryside uh, after there's been a bushfire and everything just looks destroyed. And yet, incredibly, new life comes from that. Uh, I love these photos from Russell Crowe. His uh, last spring, the New South Wales bushfires tore through his uh, property, burning up everything. And yet just 10 weeks later, after the rains had come through, he was able to post this second photo and you just see everything is living again. It's almost like the bushfire had purified everything and created space for new life. That's almost the picture, I think, that we're seeing here, that God's judgment comes on the world around us because of the sin that has cursed everything. That will be wiped away, but that will create space for new life. Uh, Randy Alcorn, who's written a fantastic book about heaven, writes about this. And he makes the point that it's really interesting how Peter, having talked about the world being destroyed and restored, then gives the reference to the great flood of Genesis. The flood is, of course, God's response to human sin. In Genesis 6, we're told that the Lord saw the wickedness of man that was was great in the earth, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And so God resolves in verse 7, he says, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. Uh, And we see this happen in chapter 7, verse 22. We're told everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. Uh, God blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground. Only Noah is left. And yet it's from Noah and those who are on the ark 
that a new beginning comes. Chapter 9, verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That is, of course, the same words that were spoken to Adam at the very beginning. And so we're getting told that there's this very strong sense of a new creation, a new beginning. And so I think that the flood is probably a good model, a helpful model for us to think about God's final judgment. Creation will be destroyed, but in that destroying, there is a restoration. Uh, Randy Elkhorn writes, the cleansing with fire will be more thorough than the flood and that it will permanently eliminate sin. But just as God's judgment by water didn't make the earth permanently uninhabitable, neither will God's judgment by fire. For me, this idea of restoration actually fits the biblical narrative better and, and wraps up the story properly. You see, God created the world perfectly, but it's corrupted by sin and haunted by death. And Jesus steps in to change that and to defeat sin and death. And that actually fits the story better, doesn't it? Anthony Hochmer writes this. If God would have to annihilate the present cosmos, then Satan would have won a great victory. Satan would have, would have succeeded in so devastatingly corrupting the present cosmos and the present earth that God could do nothing with it but to blot it totally out of existence. But Satan did not win such a victory. On the contrary, Satan has been decisively defeated. God will reveal the full dimensions of that defeat when he shall renew this very earth on which Satan deceived mankind and finally banish from it all the results of Satan's evil machinations. And it all hinges on the resurrection. Sin leads to death, but Jesus died for our sin. And Jesus' resurrection leads to new life. In his resurrection, we have the start of something new. He is the first fruits of a new creation. Not just for humanity, but for the world more broadly. And so when we read about the new heaven and the new earth in Revelation 21, I think it's here with the basic stuff in this world, but those things are renewed and restored and set aright for their proper purposes. As John Piper says, it's, it's almost like the caterpillar passes away and the butterfly emerges. The things that we have are taken away and now they're renewed in a beautiful sense and able to be all that they're supposed to be. Now, I just love this picture. I think it gives me a vision for the future that excites me, but it also gives me something for the present that inspires me. You see, if the reality is that this world will still pass away, you might be asking, what's the point of doing anything with it? Just think about it. What's the point of preserving the environment if it's all going to be burnt up anyway? It's a little bit like organising your kid's Lego. You can try and put it into the right spot, but as soon as they touch it, they'll all be messed up anyway. So, so why would you bother? But if the world that we inhabit is going to be restored and improved, then it makes more sense to look after it. It shows that this world has an enduring value and importance and existence, and so we should make it as good as possible now. Do you know, someone I know who, who's probably the most environmentally conscious person around. He's constantly turning off lights, recycles everything, refuses to use an air conditioner, except maybe when it's 40 degrees. And yet he's actually a climate change sceptic. He doesn't go along with all of the fear around climate change. 
And so he's an environmentalist simply because he loves God and wants to honor God by protecting God's creation. I like to call his attitude an attitude of serious freedom. It means living life seriously, taking life uh, seriously and caring for this world seriously, and yet with a sense of freedom, a recognition that ultimately this world is cursed still and sabotaged and it will pass away. So those two things together, the seriousness and the freedom, means that we live with an energy and an intensity and a purpose, striving hard for the very best and yet recognising our limitations and, and longing for the full restoration that Christ will bring eventually. It means having a proper perspective and a good realism, recognising that our work will not be complete until Christ returns and com completes it himself. And I've got to think that this actually gives us a radically different and a radically better attitude to the environment around us. You see, if you think that this world is all that there is and there's nothing beyond this, uh, you'll have a, a warped attitude to it. As I said on Sunday, you might just pursue pleasure and that's the only thing you're interested in. So you'll just pillage this world, this world around you, uh, for whatever you can get out of it. Or you might be horribly anxious about it. This is the only world that we have. We don't have planet B. There's no planet plan B or planet B. And so we're terrified of losing it. And you can see this all around us uh, in, in the way people think about climate change in a way that's uh, actually fear-driven. They're terrified of losing it because we have a secular culture and this world is the only thing that they believe that they have. As a Christian, I don't think we need to be like that. We know that God is in control, that he decides how things are going to go and how they're going to end. In fact, he's actually promised that he will protect this world. In Genesis 8, after the flood, he says, While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. God's decreed that that's how it's going to go. But he has also decreed that the world will end, but it will be at his choice not just because of human actions, but his decision. So we have that sense of freedom. And yet it doesn't mean that we're blasé about it either. We're serious about it. We recognise that this world is created by God, and so it's precious. Matter matters. This physical world is important. We recognise that he's entrusted this world to us. Sin means that we just uh, misuse this world. But we've now submitted to God's kingship and rule of our lives. And so we seek to bring that good dominion into the world now. We seek to uh, bless the world and the environment around us because that's what God desires from us. We recognize that we're ultimately just stewards looking after it as best we can until Jesus finally returns to redeem it. And there may even be things that we do now that can protect, be protected into the new heavens and the new earth that don't need to be purified because they're already pure. That means that we live in eager expectation. Like creation, we long for the redemption of all things. And as the first fruits of that new creation, we rejoice in every glimpse of that which is to come. How about we pray? Father God, we thank you for this glorious world that you've created. We ask that we might honour it, that we might honour the role of uh, looking after this world, of being the rulers of this world. Forgive us when we don't do that. 
Help us to uh, glorify you by protecting this and honouring you by that. Uh, Lord, um, we thank you that there is a future for this world, that it will be restored. And we look forward to seeing that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless City on a Hill. Have a fantastic week. See you later. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.